Dignity Podcast. My name is Andrew Flack, and I'll be your host. Dr. Tom Cummings is formerly a family physician in Pacific Beach and now working as the medical director for Interim Gift of Hospice. Having been involved in over 200 end-of-life experiences, Dr. Cummings discusses the evolution of death with dignity while identifying barriers and obstacles that still exist today and why he feels the End-of-Life Option Act is a necessity for terminally ill patients. As always, we appreciate your time, we appreciate your comments, and we hope you enjoy the episode. All right, cool. Well, welcome, everybody. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrew Flack, and today we're here with Dr. Tom Cummings. Uh, Dr. Tom, introduce yourselves to the listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself and just your general background of who you are and maybe your educational experience and how you're involved in this field. Okay. Um, Well, I'm a native San Diegan, proudly. (laughs) My dad was in the Navy. Um, So anyway, then I went to high school here, went to college at Stanford, UCSD Medical School. And when I was in med, when I was an undergraduate, I studied psychology, which kind of made me interested in people's approach to their health. Such that when I went to med school, I decided to become a family doctor just because it puts you in touch with all that's going on, and then also the uh, family dynamics, taking care of third and fourth generations of uh, families. So that was fun. That's cool. And then um, early on in my experience, I had, well, firstly, I lost my dad in a a commercial airlines crash uh, the week before I started medical school. And that kind of put me in touch with grief and dying. And then Doris Howell was a professor of mine in medical school, and she was teaching a class on death and dying. We used uh, Kubler-Ross's book as a text, and so that kind of put me in touch with the grief process and respecting people at the end of life. And so during my practice, I was very focused on making sure that as people transitioned, that they were as comfortable as they could be and try to avoid unnecessary intervention. And then the San Diego Hospice was founded uh, early in my practice, and I became a physician that um, would take care of hospice patients so that if they had somebody whose primary care doctor wasn't interested in following them, a lot of physicians felt as people were dying, there's not much I can do. You know, there's nothing more I can do to uh, reverse the course of this illness, so they would kind of back away. And tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about hospice care and what exactly that entails. Hospice care is, um, by definition, it's somebody has six months or less to live suffering from terminal illness. That is what Medicare requires in terms of uh, qualification for the hospice benefit. 
in our model, we take care of people in their homes or in nursing homes. We don't uh, have an inpatient hospice. There is such a thing as inpatient hospice. San Diego Hospice used to have one up close to the UCSD Hillcrest campus. Um, but it's basically assuring comfort in transition and helping families cope. We have social workers uh, that get involved. You have the option of having a chaplain involved if there's a sense of wanting to explore, explore some spirituality as you come close uh, along with your family. And then um, nurse will see the patient at least once a week. Nurses' aides will come and help bathe and you know uh, take care of the patient, change sheets, things like that. We have volunteers that are available to provide respite care if a family member needs to run to the grocery store or however it might work. So basically, it's um, trying to help to keep people in the home prior to death. Most ideally, then, death occurs in the home, in the comfort of the home, um, and that we make an effort to keep people out of the hospital. Absolutely. That, uh, that's got to be some of the hardest work to do on this planet and, um, in, my, in my book. And I, I'm just thinking of your experiences as an individual, and you mentioned in particular how your father passed, and that was obviously a very sudden tragedy in your life. Do you feel that that incident was almost a driving force behind you kind of following this path in regards to hospice care. And- I think, I mean, it definitely um, was instrumental. I don't know if it was absolute. I recall as an intern, I was losing a patient who was around my dad's age. It was a woman. She had multiple kids um, and just experiencing that vicariously with that family was a, a pretty big flashback for me and then it caused me to think how could we do this better you know she was in the hospital and you know that happened a couple times in training where families would be around young families as their parent was dying and then I'd think well you know at least they got to say goodbye but apart from that how can how can I learn from this how can I help in this regard, perhaps similar to you, Andrew, saying, how can I cause my experience to help others who might be in a similar situation? Sure. So for me, it wasn't so much the patients as it was their families. Right. Because in death, it's kind of who we leave behind that is suffering. I don't believe that there's suffering after death the individual who's who's passed on i i agree and that's uh for me and this whole process i know is something that i always had the most difficult time with i wasn't when considering my own circumstances always afraid of transitioning and passing on what i was always most afraid of is what would happen to the people i left behind and I, uh, it took me a long time to kind of process through and then realize that 
the people I'm leaving behind are just as strong as I am for, you know, going through what I'm going through and being there right along the way with me and supporting and being there. And I think that, of, of course, there's the grieving stages and you need to feel that out, but they'll be just fine in the end. And it, it gives you a lot more comfort when you recognize that. So I feel like I'm finally at a place for myself personally where it's okay to be able to let go when that time comes. So it is, uh, it's important uh, to to think about those people and, and the caregiver role especially and those individuals um, to stop and, and consider them. When considering your job and your line of work, what do you find the most difficult and challenging parts and then what do you find as more rewarding and positive and benefit beneficial? Well, the difficult parts are just watching people suffer. And uh, there are people who have pain that's refractory to, you know, a heavy armamentarium <laughs> of drugs. Yeah. And so then, you know, I kind of scratch my head and say, I really want this person to be comfortable I speak to these to our patients a lot and I say we can do our best to keep you pain free and to mitigate your anxiety, mitigate your suffering, help your families to support you. But then there are times when it seems like an exercise in futility. Oh. And uh, then it's like, okay, what next? So you know, just a couple of days ago, I visited an ALS patient in Chula Vista who was at that point, and I just said, it's time to, we just have to go back to start and see what we can do to figure this out so I can put you on a drug regimen that will at least assure your comfort and mitigate your anxiety. So that, I think, is the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, and then the reward is if you are successful at that. And then apart from that, um, a lot of patients and their families are grateful. And, you know, that to have that gratitude expressed is good for me. Yeah. And that apart from that, um, then knowing that I did my best to ease their transition which is what I regard my role, easing transition into whatever's next. And um, anyway, that, that offers me a certain uh, sense of pride and giving back. Absolutely, and you should take pride in that. This is, as mentioned earlier, earlier an extremely fragile and difficult job that you're doing. I mean, it's humanity at their most vulnerable points. Uh, so I give you a tremendous amount of credit. And that kind of leads us in a way to the, I guess, concept and idea of death with dignity and the, also the end of life option act, which is in California, a law that allows a person with a terminal illness to use a medication that will end their life in a humane and dignified manner. And this is something that myself, I am eligible to use as a patient and an individual with a terminal disease. And naturally, you working in this field, I'm sure, have 
quite a bit of experience with. I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit to the End of Life Option Act and how that uh, intertwines with your organization. Well, let me backtrack sure. to my career path. <laughs> Please do. And uh, basically then I was a family doctor in Pacific Beach for a little over 20 years. And I helped people transition with the resources that were available to us then, which was hospice care at home, pain medicines, anxiety, med- anti-anxiety medicines, I took care of a lot of um, HIV-positive individuals early on in that Right, because that was... Right, and so that was, uh, from my perspective, those deaths were very problematic. I was present uh, two or three times in the home when these people would pass, and they were generally young and healthy individuals other than their... HIV, which was causing, you know, central nervous system lymphoma or something that was then taking their life, but their hearts were strong, their lungs were strong, um, whatever was going on in their brainstem to drive the next respiration was strong, and meanwhile, they were obviously suffering, and thereby too their loved ones who were in attendance were suffering and it i mean i we would wait and wait and then finally someone would take their last breath and i would think gee i sure wish there was some other way to deal with this i mean we've had dogs that we've taken to the vet when they're at the end of their life and it's just a quick euthanasia with the youth and all and I just thought it sure would be nice if we could have that in our armamentarium but we didn't so um, over the course of my career after I left practice and part of it was burnout in and about what time was that? Was that like 80s or no, so? No, it was in the early 80s that okay. I was taking care of the HIV mm-hmm. patients and then I finally um Retired from my clinical practice in 2002 after mm-hmm. 22 years of being the people's doctor of Pacific Beach. Okay. And uh, anyway, um, part of it was that I was losing. I had lost. I counted when I left practice. I had um, attended in death. 250 people that I could recall their name, their diagnosis, their age, you know, a succinct recollection. And the difference with that was a lot of them had been with me for 20 years or however many it was until they passed and we had relationships. Sure. So I was uh, not only losing patients, but seemingly losing friends. And I just said, I had a guy come in who would have been about my dad's age had my dad lived. He was dying of prostate cancer. We were buddies. And, uh, you know, I had to tell him this was it. And I just kind of broke down. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just said, I don't, I think it's time for me to, to move on. I've seemingly lost some objectivity here. So I left my practice. I continued to be, be involved in other activities and then um, kept my license current. Then the End of Life Option Act became law. 
and a friend of mine, Donna Olson, who had started the uh, interim hospice, gift of hospice in San Diego, was very interested in providing this option to patients. She had worked at the San Diego hospice as a nurse in the inpatient side. And her medical director at the time thought that this was contrary to the Hippocratic Oath. So he said, I'm leaving if this is what you want to do. So then she reached out to me and I said, this is something that I'd like to participate in. It's something that I felt was missing in my years of clinical practice. And I'd be happy to come on board and serve in this role. So basically, End of Life Option Act brought me out of retirement. And uh, what the End of Life Option Act is then is, um, as you say, providing a death with dignity or allowing people the option to take a fatal overdose of a medication if they feel that their suffering is no longer tolerable. And in my mind, that's their call. So um, since 2017, then, when the law went into effect, I've been writing the prescriptions. Okay. I did have a brief uh, break when I had to have my ankle fused, <laughs> but now I'm back. Excellent. So, good, good. That's uh, We need advocates like you uh, supporting individuals who feel that this is an option for them or should be an option. And you mentioned the Hippocratic. Hippocratic Oath and how that is a barrier at times for some doctors and individuals. And I wondered if there were other barriers that you found in your experiences with uh, whether it's doctors in the medical profession or even patients who uh, don't find that as a reasonable choice. Well, um, you know, the main barrier, I think, in people's minds as patients would be religious such that how they were uh, raised religiously causes them to feel that their fate is in God's hands. And regardless of their ability to intervene, perhaps as a gift of God, <laughs> that um, they do not want to, uh, you know, quote-unquote, commit suicide, that it's a sin, so, I mean, I've had this discussion with patients and their families, and um, Dolores Huerta, who's one of the founders of the United Farm Workers and is Catholic, has said this is something that we need. She's one of the big proponents of this effort through compassion and choices. So there are ways, I think, to rationalize use of this medicine and have it yet be compatible with your religious beliefs. Sure. Um, otherwise, there are physicians who have those similar religious beliefs. And, um, you know, what I say to them when I'm asking them, say, perhaps to serve in the consulting role when I'm the attending physician writing the drug, I said, well, it's not your job to uh, put your beliefs onto your patients. It's your job to support your patient sure. <laughs> in their beliefs. So all I'm asking you to do as a consultant is to say this person is able 
to make this decision. You're not necessarily agreeing with it. Right, right. That's reasonable in my opinion. Do you generally get any pushback in that situation? I feel like this topic is, it's either you're in or you're out. It's, there's very little in between. So I can imagine it being tough to kind of try to sway someone's opinion if they are not in. Um, I mean, that is the case. And uh, there are, I mean, I have had physicians say, oh, I hadn't really thought of it that way. And, you know, I'd like to help. I like this patient and I can see that they're suffering it. I'd like to help them. It's not something I would do for myself, but I respect their decision and their values. Good. And um, I'm think my observation is that as we're doing more of this, or more people are opting for this, that those physicians are more coming on board. There are some circumstances where physicians are forbidden by contract from doing this if they work, for example, for a Catholic health system or um, any uh, federally funded age system. They are, uh, Congress has enacted a law against um, paying monies to health centers that are federally funded that uh, support what they call assisted suicide. So I have had physician who say, oh, sure, I'll sign that document. And then their boss, tell, you know, the clinic director says, you can't do that. Wow. We're obligated by federal right. law to not participate. That's fascinating. And talk to us about the difference between the idea of the End of Life Option Act and something like suicide. When I consider though, when I consider suicide and think about that process, to me, it is an individual who's generally likely depressed, suffering maybe from some kind of mental health disorder, uh, does not want to live anymore, and makes a choice to leave this planet. Whereas somebody who is sick with a terminal disease. I would think that most of these people do want to live. However, they are just so sick and in so much pain and suffering. And again, we know this is a disease that's terminal. There's nothing more that the doctors or medical profession can do to cure them of this disease. So to make that decision to end their life in a humane and dignified manner, I, I'd support that as I think, yeah, you get to a point with suffering where enough is enough. What is your perspective on the idea of death with dignity versus something like suicide. I mean, I think you stated it well. And uh, apart from that, it may be a matter of nomenclature, or just what is the definition of suicide. And Certainly I'm, semantics are uh, a <laughs> right. component, absolutely. And then there are people who hear that word and think negatively about it. I mean, in my experience, uh, I did have patients that, would commit suicide, and typically they were some form of uh, psychological agony, not physical agony, although right. the two can be associated with one another. Um, and then the other main difference is that they are generally alone. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. Uh, that's right, so whether it be the hanging, the gunshot wound, the 
um, you know, however you might choose to end your life, to have your loved ones find you subsequently. I mean, and, and that is a huge difference with a medical aid in dying is that this has been predetermined. It's been discussed. It's been accepted most generally. Families are present. You know, people are having their final goodbyes and then it's witnessed and it's peaceful and it's done. And that's something that I think as I explore this topic more and learn about it, that I find a positive and a benefit of this process. And when I think of my own path down the line, how lucky I will be if I am in that situation to be surrounded by the most important people in my life and the people I love and friends and family. Not everyone, a lot of people who pass, they aren't with those those individuals well, and they might be now alone. in covid and absolutely with covid and what we've experienced as of late and just freak accidents and anything i mean none of this is a given we know that and to have that opportunity is um i think a powerful thing for everybody involved well, including is, the people you leave behind and i think it's most meaningful for those people it gives them you know a better sense of closure perhaps even though there are yet stages of grief that they'll have to go through sure but um and what was that process like i'm it sounds like you've been with individuals who have used the medical aid and dying drugs and can you speak to what that is like with their family, the whole process, consuming the medication to the passing of the individual? Mm-hmm. Just uh, maybe some of those experiences. I mean, most commonly when I've been present, it's been do this <laughs> quickly. You know, it's just like, okay, you're here. I've been waiting and I want to go forward with this, then I will, you know, allow, I'll say, do you want to have some private time? I'm, you know, a relative stranger to this family or however it works. And then I can help to uh, prepare the solution. It comes from the pharmacy as a powder, and then it needs to be mixed with uh, water or juice. So then it's prepared, and then the patient has to be able to self-administer. So that's one of the requirements by law is the patient needs to be have cognitive awareness, you know, full cognitive abilities, and then be able to self-ingest, whether it be to hold it and drink it from a cup, to drink it with a straw. Um, we've had patients with ALS wherein they have a gastrostomy tube and we can put the a solution in a gravity bag and then they can crimp it in their hand and release it, that self-administration. There's the ability if you, uh, I've had patients that have had esophageal cancer or you know inability to swallow um bowel obstruction, whatever it be, sure. you can um, have the medicine be administered rectally through a rectal tube, and the rectum absorbs 
drugs really well. So the same thing, a gravity bag with a crimp and then release or a syringe with a plunger that the patient can then self-administer. So um, then what happens always is within about five minutes, the patient falls asleep. So they've said their goodbyes, they start to drift. Um, at, uh, I've had people say to me, oh, I'm feeling a little buzz or, uh-huh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> like feel pretty good. Like, <laughs> right. like, like you for not yeah, maybe euphoria, just right. a Whatever warm, good feeling, then, huh? I, you know, sure. if you have some sense, yes, I'm on the threshold and yeah. this is good. Yeah. Um, so anyway, then it takes a while for the heart to stop and the breathing to stop. It's not the immediate effect like we experience with our pets in the veterinarian's office. But it's generally with the compounding uh, formulation that we're using now, it takes about a half hour. And it can be longer, it can be shorter. Um, I think the shortest I've witnessed personally is 10 minutes. Okay. where somebody took their last breath. Okay. So uh, the problem can arise with the more lengthy you know, terminal events that the patient's families are worried that they're going to wake up. Right. And then what do we do? You know, will they have brain damage or however it might work? But thankfully, there's been enough experience with this that I don't think there's been a case where that's happened there. Clearly, Not from what I've read, yeah. right? And um, I've been, I work with uh, Compassion and Choices. And when I first started doing this, that's the group in Oregon that has been doing this for a sustained interval. Have lots of experience. Uh, Dr. David Grube, he's, I have his cell phone number. If we're in a situation where I'm wondering, is this how it's supposed to work? I can call. Sure, sure. Good. Say, How, you know, is this right? He said, yes. And I think in their experience in Oregon, when they were using Secondol, they had one case that was like 20 hours. Okay. But um, there's been a lot of studies done now on, um, you know, just fine-tuning the process and making a combination of drugs that, pretty much going to work for anybody regardless of size disease metabolism good good and it sounds like for the individual it is peaceful and an easygoing transition in the family you know for the family as well a peaceful opportunity to see them pass mm-hmm. and i think that's important on the way out to see that there is a lack of suffering and that this drug really works and helps it does what it's supposed to do. Right. No, for sure. The first time I prescribed it, I had to be there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you recall that first experience pretty vividly? Yes. Yeah. And it was with the second all, and um, patients were dispensed 100, uh, 100 milligram, yeah, 100, 100 milligram tablets, capsules of second all. And then the capsules needed to be opened, the powder emptied into a glass toothpick to clean it out and make sure you got it all. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this was a little lady with um, 
metastatic lung cancer who was ready. So anyway, um, I think she weighed about 85 pounds. And so I'd mixed the medicine. I gave it to her. She started drinking it with a straw. And then about three quarters of the way through, she fell asleep. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was pretty potent stuff. Right. And so then I'm thinking, do I need to somehow Make- coax the rest of this into her? Sure. But I just know she has to take it herself. Yep. So I called Dave, <laughs> and he said, uh, don't worry. Uh, I think they said this is 40 times the fatal dose or whatever wow, it might okay, be. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. it's just so potent. Yeah, yeah. And that it would, you know, kill an elephant. Sure. Or whatever that's worth as an analogy. Yeah. And then... Um, you know, she fell asleep, she took her last breath, and that was that. Mm-hmm. But um, I was happy to help her because she was angry that she couldn't do it sooner. Oh, wow. We had the 15-day waiting period. She was really suffering. She, When she came on our service, she was under the understanding that her disease was curable. <laughs> Oh, geez. So, I mean, and that can be problematic, too, when people are given yeah, false hope and yeah, misinformation. Yeah, huge, huge. Uh, so, yeah. anyway, when she, be, but, um, when she knew that she wasn't going to survive and she felt so poorly, she just said, I need to do this ASAP. Wow. So. Yeah, it's uh, heavy stuff. I... And you talked about the type of medication that's used, and I'll never forget the first time, well, I had gone through the process with my oncologist of completing the end-of-life option act requirements with meeting with the physicians and such, and the prescription was written, and I went for an appointment at UCSD unrelated to the topic, just a general appointment, and they always print your aftercare report, and it has a list of your prescriptions on it, and I remember I was happened to glance at it and I saw a bunch of new scripts on there that I had never seen before. And they were really odd medical type of words. You know, I could barely pronounce them. Huge numbers, 30 grams of this, 30 grams of that, not milligrams, you know, grams we're talking. I'm going, what the hell is this stuff? Then I'm reading the directions, consume this one hour before taking this and that and do this and that. I realized this is a medication for the end of life option act. And it just kind of hit you in that moment. Wow, this is very real, and it's it's something that is now on the table for sure. And I'll just never forget seeing that and the realization of how powerful and heavy this whole thing is, this whole process. But at the same time, knowing that that is there as an option is relieving, and it is uh, a choice, and it brings a sense of comfort as you go through the, the disease. Right. Well, and, um, I may have spoken with you about this before, but there are patients who just enjoy having it there for the, that sense of comfort that w- where they are in their disease process presently, it's, they're not considering it. Sure. But at some point in time, if they get to that point where 
like in lung cancer, I'm gasping for breath or in so much pain, or it's nice to know that I will have something there that I can take. And I think the statistics are statewide for the um, number of prescriptions that have been written, about 67% or you know, roughly two-thirds are taken, mm-hmm. but the others are at home. So having the prescription doesn't mandate that you take it. Right. You can let you can yet let nature take its course. Absolutely. And that is a great piece of the legislation is that even if you do decide to call and have the medication delivered, you still don't have to necessarily follow through. You can decide it's not the right time for you. Uh, so I think it's important to again have that autonomy and that uh those options as a patient. And I wonder when thinking about individuals and as they go through this process, really it goes back to me, the family and their experiences and how they are able to kind of respond and move forward um, after, you know, their loved one departs. And just from your experience, how do families generally respond after their their loved one passes? Do they feel almost like a sense of relief and calm and understanding like, okay, good, this person is no longer suffering and at least we got to see them go peacefully? There's got to be some comfort there that they can draw from. I think so. I mean, um, it is relatively new in terms of uh, our life's experience. And there are people who, um, and we had a chaplain that worked for us when I was last with interim hospice who did our bereavement counseling. And she felt that it was perhaps different with people who had taken the end of life option. And you know whether it be more comforting or perhaps some guilt perhaps that I was part of this or whatever it might be. And she thought it would be worthy of study. Oh yeah. It's about, <laughs> that's a, that would be a good study. So uh, continue. Uh, Did she end up going with anything? No, or? she ended up leaving our group, but I thought it was kind of a fascinating notion that yeah. it is, it's different. Yeah. How do, uh, exactly. How do families, you know, long-term and short-term, how do they cope and grieve and move forward mm-hmm. when, you know, an individual does use that medication versus departing naturally? As right. Yeah. That's very fascinating. And one of the pieces recently with the end of life option act passed, I believe back in February, they uh, amended the bill and removed the 15-day waiting period is now, I believe, a 48-hour waiting right. period. That just uh, was signed by the governor in October. Right, yes, just and recently. that will then go into effect on January 1st. Okay, good. And part of that, which I found interesting, is that hospice agencies are now required by law to state on their website basically their perspective on the End of Life Option Act and whether or not they support and how they will provide services or if they won't provide services. Mm-hmm. Do you think that will help, you know, promote 
growth in this field in a way? Well, there are, I mean, there are people who are concerned that it, the, uh, there's not broad-based knowledge about this option, you know, especially among, say, ethnic minorities or whatever it might be. Um, but, um, if you look at the demographics of the people who have used the drug to date, it's mostly white people. Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean in terms of access and availability? Sure. So that um, I think that that's one of the reasons why they in- included that language in the legislation. I, um, I think it should be a hospice's role to let people know when they come on service that this is an option. Absolutely. And then, yes, we can provide it for you. Or no, we don't provide it, but we can help to uh, refer you to someone who can help you with this. Or there are hospices that say, we can't have anything to do with this. We're a nonprofit. Our board of directors, you know, has philosophical objections. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's important to be more forward with what this, you know, offers to people. And and we we will present it as an option and people will say, oh, I didn't realize that was legal in in California. Exactly. And that's, that's how my experience was. I, I didn't even know it was an option here. And this is well into my being sick. And it just kind of happened naturally, my conversation with my oncologist, how we kind of happened to get to that point. And then I I look back, and I think, I'm kind of surprised I didn't think about that initially in a way, because California is quite progressive. And um, yeah, I wouldn't have been very surprised to hear that, I suppose. But um yeah, it's just not something you think about, you know, as a patient, not a, especially not early on in your diagnosis. And as things move forward, yeah, it's hard to uh, imagine that, I guess. But it, people need to advocate and share. Right. And, I mean, there are doctors who don't tell patients and who do their best to kind of hide it and sweep it under the rug and all that. Well, and there was a recent article in the San Diego Union-Tribune when they talked about SB 380, I believe it is, going into the legislative process that uh, the author's research indicated that people felt a sense of stigmatization in approaching, um, you know, taking their own life, perhaps. Uh, And I read it, and I emailed the author I said I have never found that to be the case I have experience yeah and most commonly people are content to know but uh, anyway there is that aspect of it too where you know why should you feel stigmatized in doing something to end one's suffering um, just doesn't make sense to me and uh i was i wrote a bit of a nasty uh, communication <laughs> to the editor hey. not for publication but i just said i think this article was inadequately researched good 
good. And again, that's a way to advocate. Right. And uh, yeah, I I can't imagine. Well, I'd hope that there wouldn't be a stigma. And well, and that's something you would feel, Andrew. Right. Exactly. Do you feel stigmatized? And, no, I feel I, stronger I, for perhaps having right the courage to make this decision. Sure. No, that's a good question. But for me, no, I. I don't consider it anywhere near the same kind of category as suicide. And that's just from my personal perspective. I know we all have differences, opinions, but from what I've experienced so far with this disease, we know that it's not fun having cancer or any sort of terminal disease. And I know that what I'm experiencing now, which has been hell as it is, is really nothing compared to what still lies ahead uh, as the body deteriorates. And unfortunately, over the last few months, the body has been deteriorating. There's still a ways to go, I think. But Well, and you make the call, and I can tell you uh, when I suggested you guys come down to my house <laughs> for this as I started to think about it, I said, that's kind of selfish on my part. Andrew doesn't need to spend two hours <laughs> in traffic. Well, that's kind of you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> got a liver today. <laughs> Thank you for thinking of me that way, Tom. That, that is sweet of you. Um, <laughs> very kind. But And that's true. It, it is about enjoying each moment and just something as simple as that. Yeah, a little extra time, it is meaningful. And But I guess going back to the stigma, no, I, I don't feel that there's a stigma there. I wonder if I were to use that medication or individuals who do uh, post-mortem, you wonder. I think there's always a stigma. There will always be people who look at you and could, will say, yeah, he, he basically killed himself. Well, nobody has life. to know. That's part of the law. Um, you know, They suggest that somebody else be there when you ingest the medicine, but it can be a hospice employee or whomever. You can do this medicine without letting your family know. That's your right as well. It's not considered suicide on the death certificate. The death certificate is uh, indicative of your underlying disease. So your underlying disease took your life. You just decided to cause it to happen a little sooner than it might have happened otherwise. I did have a, a fireman who was very concerned as he was about to ingest this medicine that his wife would not get his health and his life insurance benefit and continued yeah. pension benefit, things like that, which it's written not to be paid for suicide. I said, there, your wife and you and me are the only people that know this death certificate will not reflect it so that in that regard, post-mortem, you know, feel free to uh, have a clear conscience. Yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> and uh, apart from that, know that you have the right to tell people, I, I don't want you to say this, to tell anyone about this, whether they do or not, perhaps you'll know. Sure. Um, and then beyond that, I'll just say, who cares what other people think because I'm doing the right thing. Hey, I'm with you. Um, it's uh, it's about what's best for the individual. And I, I don't 
I think sometimes people miss the empathy piece. Um, maybe they haven't experienced true suffering or physical or emotional or seen someone or known a family member who have been really ill. But uh, for those of us who have and um, have been a part of that or experienced it firsthand, it's obviously not fun. And there gets a, I think we all know that there's a certain point where enough is enough. And with that too, do you do a lot of the patients who use the medication from your experience and from what you have observed, do they generally have that feeling and just know, like, okay, today is going to be the day, or maybe they'll maybe some look at the calendar and say, in two weeks on this date, I'm going to use the medication, and that'll give me time to, you know, have so and so come out or see these people or whatever it might be. Right, no, it's it's variable. Mm-hmm. But uh, most commonly, it's a set a date where my son can come from Michigan, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, so I, I want to wait till he's available to be here with me. Um, there are people that say ASAP, and I'm letting everybody know, and hopefully they can be here. If they can't, then I need to do this as soon as possible. Um, so it's variable. Um, I mean, the question is, is it possible to wait too long and then be too sick to be able to self-administer? And I have had... It's scary to think about. Right. Have you had seen that? or I haven't seen it, but I've had concerns. And then I did have a situation wherein someone had asked... And then uh, the judge in Riverside put a temporary, or whatever you call it, uh, stay on the law so that it became overnight illegal to prescribe end-of-life option act. So I was unable to prescribe for this gentleman, and he hung himself. Oh, wow. And, th- I mean, that was... That's heavy. Well, and then the coroner's involved. And yeah. So, anyway... Yeah, that's that's but, I mean and that speaks to why we need this law. Exactly. Yeah. I mean that's sending a message from that individual as to how much they were hurting, I think. Right. No, it could have been much a much smoother passage, although perhaps it was smooth for him. I'm All right. Right. He did it his way. Yeah. Are there any other major pieces that you would like to share or consider when talking about the idea of death with dignity or the end-of-life option act. One thing that you mentioned earlier, which I kind of wanted to touch on real quick too, was um, our animals and how we euthanize or put our animals down. And I often think back to my dog, Dora, and she was so sick at the end of her life. She was having like up, up to five seizures a day. Some of them were five, six, eight minutes long. Um, she lost control of her hind legs at the very end. It's like, man, there's no quality of life there. Why would we ever let anybody suffer like that, an animal or a person? And it was uh, the best gift I gave her was a way out of that suffering. It would have been selfish to keep her around. 
And right. well, uh, I, I, I say those dogs will live forever for us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, she never begrudged you for yeah. keeping her alive, but right. then she was thankful when you let when you gave her permission to go. Exactly. And she um I just think that we owe that to ourselves. I think of people in my life, my grandma, she had uh pretty horrible dementia at the end of her day. She um was just very sick physically and mentally and uh it's just it's yeah it's there's no quality of life at some point right well compassion and choices is an organization which i mean dementia is a special circumstance because by law those people can't exactly take their own lives and i think that's important too you need to have you know independence and autonomy and um self-determination and such but But at the same time like i wonder if there'd ever be an opportunity like where early onset dementia you know like okay Mm -hmm. i have this disease would someone be able to say i want this option as end of life option act but only once I get to this point is that. Are you able to well, prescribe you can, that? Um, for? You can't do the end of life option, but what you can do when you have uh, full competence and you're working to set up your advanced directives, which is you know what to do should something happen to me if you know I'm found not breathing. Do I go on a breathing machine or CPR? You can set up an advanced directive to say should I not be able to decide for myself should i have dementia then for example don't feed me don't hydrate me in which case over a period of days to weeks you'll you'll die yeah presently we keep a lot of people alive with what you and i might regard as poor quality of life and who's it satisfying you know, there are families who push to hydrate and feed their elderly parents who are not at all communicative, locked in, whatever it might be. It's not my place as a physician to place my values on them. Sure. But uh, I do try to encourage people that I know presently, friends who's, you know, I'm in the age group now where <laughs> dementia may be around the corner. Sure. I'd like to have advanced directives to say, please don't feed me. I mean, I don't want to be a burden if I don't have quality of life. Sure. So there is that option. And then on the Compassion and Choices website, they have a lot of resources on how to write those advanced directives. <clears throat> Good. So, and they have you know, various uh, things like, don't feed me if, I turn my head away from, you know, the spoon. Don't right. feed me if I appear totally disinterested. Okay. So so it's somewhat similar in a way. You can kind mm-hmm. of have some of that control. And I'm not saying like, hey, let's go around and, you know, have all these people use this medication. It's nothing like that at all. But right. just for your own, I mean, you get to, with that particular disease, you just you get to a point where you don't have any recognition of really anything mm-hmm. yourself or anybody. And, right. Um, well, and in uh, the olden days, <laughs> I mean, before modern medicine and our ability to keep people alive and our state laws that protect care in the nursing homes, and I mean, 
people didn't live long after getting into that circumstance where they couldn't care for themselves. Sure. But, um, you know, there are societal mores or whatever it might be that cause people to think we have to care for this person, have to keep them alive as long as they're breathing. But, uh, you know, that's a value judgment. Yeah, yeah, everyone's got a different perspective, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and everybody's <laughs> entitled to their values. Absolutely, absolutely. Hasban, do you have anything? Um, you always seem to have some gems at the end of these uh, little discussions. Um, I just wanted to uh, ask one question, which is that uh, you were talking about grief, and I was just wondering if, like, grief experience for families, or, like, in your experience anyways, is it different for pe- for families when they experience, like, grief regularly versus if they do it with the death with dignity process? Like, what is what is it like for the families afterwards, I guess? If you have any insight like into that. Well, we spoke to that briefly about our uh, chaplain saying, our bereavement mm-hmm. coordinator saying she thought that this should be studied. But uh, my personal observation is that it's easier for these families when it's been discussed in advance. You know, they have their final goodbyes. They know what their loved one's wishes are. I have been involved where I was at a home one time and a ALS patient with a tracheostomy that he was having to suction and um, feeding tube, whatever, and he just said, I'm done. And his son came in and said, I don't approve of this. And And I said, well, why is that? He said, well, dad sometimes tells a funny joke. And I said, well... You know, let's ask your dad what he wants. I said, it would be nice if we could achieve some consensus here. It would be important, I think, for your dad to know that you support him in this effort. And, you know, he, I mean, you could see the wheels turning and he finally came around. But uh, it was kind of a trip that, you know, this guy's quality of life was obviously horrible, and he had reached the end, and yet his son was saying he wanted to keep him around because he told a funny joke every now and then. um, Yeah, not not the best trade-off there. Right. So anyway... um, but in a nutshell, I think it's—I think it should probably be studied the grieving process following this versus just allowing things to happen naturally. And then there's grief uh, after sudden death, which has been studied. You know, sudden unexpected loss, which is what I experienced. Yeah. So. Yeah, your dad was on the same plane as Stephen Colbert's dad, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I mean, yeah, plane crash. That's as about right. as uh, sudden as it gets. Right, one day they're there and the next day they're gone and it just kind of helps one put it into perspective on uh, making today count. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mean, the fragility of this life is just, yeah, it's it's hard to describe. I mean, that situation right there is the epitome. Right. Yeah, that's what I kept thinking about during your guys' uh, discussion that like, the families, whatever happens afterward is a whole, you know, 
societal um, burden, not burden, but like responsibility as well. You know, maybe introducing this process has actually helped families come, you know, get closer, talk to each other about things they might not necessarily have before because they kind of have a date. And yeah, right. that whole idea is very fascinating. As opposed to somebody being gone and saying, I didn't get to say goodbye. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. And yeah, that's a good point, Hasban. I mean, just from my experience, I've I've made it a point to talk with each of my individual family members and just talk to them about why I want might use this as an option and ask them how they feel. And, you know, that's not something we ever would have discussed in this had I not been sick and, uh, you know, be out here in California. But I think it gives people a chance to dig deeper and reflect. And, I mean, even us, look at us now. We're all here doing this podcast and interviewing you and uh, Dr. Tom, and it's, I think it's goes back to, for me, it goes back to the belief of how it's all coming together as we move forward. Well, so. and what I learned from my dad's death is that it's our legacy that carries forward, you know, regardless of what may be there in uh, subatomic particles or the collective consciousness <laughs> we talked about before. But, uh, you know, I think none of us are going to live forever. And it's our memories then that are going to um, be held in people's minds and then perhaps shared with the next generation and the one thereafter. But yeah. beyond that, do what you can today. I agree. That's a beauty, beautiful perspective and uh, kind of a nice way to, I think, go out on this pod. For sure. The legacy, everyone, as said by Dr. Tom Cummings, along with some really wonderful information and personal experiences. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking the time out of your busy schedule and just doing what you do to support so many people. It's incredible work. So thank you. Well, and I want to thank you, Andrew, for having the courage to put it all out there like this. It's, I'm uh, proud to be included. Absolutely. Thanks, Tom. And thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) 